Hey there, and welcome to Marvel by the Month, the podcast that usually takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. My name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. This is a special fill-in episode uh, because sometimes we just need to buy ourselves an extra week uh, for what has turned out to be a ridiculous amount of research and prep (laughs) that goes into this show. Uh, This has basically become our part-time job. I think that's fair to say. Oh, yeah. Just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, when we're getting ready for uh, an episode of this, uh, we'll read through every comic that Marvel published uh, four times faster than they release them, because uh, we do four episodes a month. And then we'll spend, you know, for each episode, several hours trying to pull together as much history and trivia as we can about the books and the characters and what was going on in the world and and things like that. Um, then, of course, there's the whole process of reaching out to guests, trying to convince them to spend a couple hours of their lives uh, talking talking about this stuff with us. But you know, it's it's really it's all worth it when we finally post that episode on a Wednesday morning. And then someone immediately chimes in and says, well, actually, in that issue, Dr. Strange used the amulet of Agamotto because he didn't get the eye of Agamotto until Strange Tales number 127. Um, So, yeah, sometimes we need a break. (laughs) Uh, And I do love being well actually, you know, by uh, both our guests and uh, the listeners, because I'm the well actually guy. I think, you know. Most of our guests and us are the well actually guy with most of our friends, especially <laughs> yes. when it comes to comics. <laughs> and, you know, and steel sharpens steel. So, you know, keep it coming. But, you know, some weeks we just want to watch a dang movie. So that's exactly what we did for this episode. Uh, we are going to take a trip back in time, not quite as far back in time as we usually do. Uh, but once again, we are going to explore that era when movies based on Marvel Comics were hitting the screen, but before there was such a thing as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, young listeners, there were Marvel movies before Kevin Feige, and they were a real mixed bag. Uh, <laughs> this week, we're going to take a look at Howard the Duck, which was released in 1986. I think it's fair to say that probably most people are aware of Howard the Duck, even if they haven't seen the movie. It's infamous for being one of the most notorious critical and commercial flops uh, in in movie history. Um, but the question is, did it deserve to be? Um, is it really as bad as the reputation suggests? Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And joining us uh, for this conversation uh, is our second most frequent guest on the podcast uh, <laughs> and the first actual comics professional who would give us the time of day. Uh, our good friend and yours, writer, editor, man about town, Mr. Joe Keating. What's up, fellas? It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, truly. (laughs) So I'm I'm going after number one. I don't know who that other guy is, the frequent guest, but let me tell you, they're going down. That's Noah Campbell, and he's been put on notice. So, yeah, yeah, he knows (laughs) you're coming. coming. (laughs) So, uh, so Joe, how you been? It's been a little while since we had you on. Yeah, well, it's been it's been great. As I recall, the last time and the, the continuity of these episodes and which ones I've been on and what order they are is a little wonky. But <laughs> if I recall correctly, was when we talked about Doctor Strange or the one where we talked about Inglorious Bastards, essentially added depth or predecessor and Sergeant Fury. Yeah, either yeah. way, yeah, mm-hmm. a new coming back it had to be for a great reason and. We, we certainly have it here. So. Yeah. So this is this is an episode that you have been particularly interested in doing for a little while now. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you guys were like, "Oh, he's the first professional that we had to like like was convinced to come on here." And I I believe as soon as you guys talked about the podcast, I was pitching you episodes. Yes. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we you know we did the Atlas one, which I think was the first the super Atlas superhero era. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Howard the Duck and uh, its creator Steve Gerber, in particular, are two uh, subjects that mean a lot to me. So I, I uh, when you guys were talking about doing Marvel movies, those I believe the two that I called were Doctor Strange and which we did with Ibrahim yep. and uh, Howard the Duck. I really wanted to do so. <laughs> So we right, take your yeah. pitches seriously. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's awesome. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. Um, so so you mentioned the comic, you mentioned Steve Gerber. I don't think we can really get into the movie without talking about uh both of those. Um and, and Joe, you you mentioned, you know, as we were uh kind of preparing this episode that uh that you knew Steve Gerber. Yeah. Back in the olden days, the old wild west of the internet when AOL reigned king, there was a AOL America online. You type in a keyword of whatever interest you had. My interest was comic books. And I went on there and there wasn't a lot of people on there just yet, but Gerber was one of them. And he was the first pro that I had. Like we had a long correspondence that went on for, for years, early to mid to late nineties. So someone that period of time. So essentially when I was in high school and he was the first professional I ever talked with about wanting to be a writer. And, um, you know, he, he had like, he would look over my old, I don't want to call him a mentor. I think it's a little much, but he certainly played aspects of that kind of role. Um, and he's just extremely kind and really formed a lot of my opinions and philosophies on comics, greatly influenced by him. Um, but, you know, my relationship with him is aside, like he's, I think, one of the most brilliant writers comics has ever seen. Um, I think he's comparable to Kurt Vonnegut uh, in terms of, like quality of, of writing and also like what talking about late 20th century America and um, you know, really digging into, into that. So, and of course I think with the, the work he's done it best on is Howard the duck. Um, I love his work. He's usually one of my biggest influences in writing in and other comics. So. Yeah. I just finished rereading the first like 16 issues or so of Howard the duck and, and the, you know, the, the issues of, man thing that he first appeared in and I had read them years ago and I remember enjoying them then um, and then revisiting them now I was just struck by how how ahead of his time he was um, and it, it's such a I can't believe Marvel published it quite honestly like <laughs> yeah I have a little bit of perspective on that because I was doing some research on it and apparently I mean look so I'm gonna add a huge caveat to pretty much anything is that like, uh-huh. obviously none of the three of us were there and you know, at the time, especially Marvel in the late seventies. So, you know, a lot of it's conjecture. Um, but my understanding was that editorial was so overworked. I mean, they still are, but, but to the point where, and, and Gerber had a unique um, setup with Marvel for a period of time. And so I don't think they were my impression anyway, whether it's factual or not, was that they just weren't paying attention really for a while. <laughs> And then things got a little out of control and then that led to a bunch of other stuff. But right. Right. Like Howard the duck was, didn't was viewed initially by Marvel as something that didn't work. Like it was, he was a cameo character in adventures into fear. Mm-hmm. And then in my understanding, again, this could all be apocryphal, but uh, someone probably said like, look, you got to get rid of this duck. It doesn't make any sense for, for man thing. And then, so he had Howard the duck fall off of a, a ledge Yes. And um, <laughs> they got a bunch of backlash yeah. from the readership. Like one story I read, which again, who knows if it's true, but was that someone had sent an actual dead duck to the Marvel offices. <laughs> I've heard that, that story was, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how could you do this? 
And so it just got to the point where like, all right, fine, we'll put it in a backup. We'll put yeah. backups into, I guess, Man Thing at the time. A giant size Man Thing. Easily Marvel's best title. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, 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 as avid uh, listeners of this podcast may already know, I, 70s Marvel is by far one of my favorite periods of time in comics. It's wild. Um, even the ads are insane. Like the way they try to swindle the young children's money in like really, <laughs> really uh, strange ways, and just the culture at the time. And certainly that was unique to Marvel, but I think the, their ads did it best. But anyway, they're doing these backups, which which were nuts, and then those really hit off. And so they're like, all right, we'll do a comic. And then you know the comic was brilliant. And like I, I'm going to add this caveat to this entire thing, which is Mark Evanier, who was a friend of Steve Gerber's for a long time, said mm-hmm. felt like the events especially with the lawsuits that gerber had with marvel were never reported accurately mm. and i trust mark Evanier's opinion so uh, i'm gonna go with that but anyway point is things kind of it got so successful and it really is an interesting parable into the like how far your creations can get away from you yeah and also like what is the nature of what we do as comic book creators under the work for higher model which i which i which i've done and do and you know certainly enjoy but uh anyway we'll dig into that because there's a lot Mm -hmm. of howard the duck sort of gets in that but howard the duck was a character that he he, (laughs) there's a fair amount of legal controversy that surrounded this character for Mm -hmm. most of its existence at least the early existence like you had in the in the late 70s, Disney actually reached out to Marvel. I mean, depending mm-hmm. on which version of the story you read, it was either a a polite outreach or it was a here come the Disney lawyers outreach. But, you know, basically saying that this is way too close to Donald Duck um, and you need to do something about that. Um, and apparently the um, agreement that they came to was that Marvel allowed uh, Disney artists to redesign Howard so that he was he had there there's more daylight between him and Donald Duck uh, and and one of the <laughs> one of the conditions was that Howard had to wear pants mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that was a big one that was, that was a big <laughs> the big ones seemed to be the pants and the beak mm-hmm. were like more than anything else it seemed like those were the two things Disney was like no I don't think so <laughs> put some pants uh, on <laughs> no yeah exactly <laughs> Donald Duck in it. I mean, that's what it is, right? Yeah, it's Everyone exactly knows. what it is. Yeah. One of the points for people who don't know this, why we're talking about it being so ahead of its time is Howard the Duck was sort of like the post superhero parody way early in the process. It was like a more cynical tick or something, you know, like something that's commentary on the thing that it's in. And at the same time being just zany and absurdist and, uh, that's why he's such an odd character and so talked about um, because he was in the universe really early on with the superheroes. But but the way he went about his life and the way his character expresses, you know, his uh, sort of everyman mantra through this cartoonish duck is is what made him such a point of uh, and, and just this huge topic and this huge thing about the Howard and, and how he fits in. One of the things that really made it so far ahead of its time was the things that he was really digging into were so like, I mean, this, and, and the crazy thing is Gerber was only like in his late twenties, maybe at the time he was writing this, mm-hmm. but it gets into like, you know, dangerous consumerism and the way we deal with violence and the way like it did all these really heady topics without being preachy. 
Um, because as Rob mentioned, it had the cool set dressing of like, oh, there's a vampire cow, you know, <laughs> and the absurdity is a human life. I mean, all the way through at the very end, like I just moments before that we went on the air, we're at the very last Howard Duck comic, uh, which was in 2002. Um, and that last issue was all about creator's rights. And it's all about Howard <laughs> and God essentially talking about like not even just the, the obvious thing on the tin about creators rights within the context of comics, but like what we believe and why we believe it as human beings. And it's just like, I, I don't feel like there's been another superhero writer at a big two or big four, however you want to look at it these days, who's talked about these kind of things on such a high resolution, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, is why I don't think anyone else can write Howard the Duck. I, I love the character. I don't think I should ever write that character. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was one thing where early, so about midway through, um, knowing Steve, uh, he, he, so it's a longer story, but essentially he stole Howard the Duck from Marvel and renamed it Leonard the Duck. <laughs> and I was writing my own sort of like, not fanfic, because all original characters, but essentially my own sort of fiction when I was in high school. And I asked him if I could use Leonard the Duck. And he was like, no, it's like, it's just create your own thing. You know what I mean? Um, and it's just, it's not, it's, that's really the fun of what this, this, this medium can do, you know? Um, and the impression I always got, especially reading everything in, in retrospect, was I think that's just what he was doing because it was 70s New York and 70s Marvel. No one was paying attention. And he just, you know, there's that, Hemingway quote that Hemingway didn't say, but like writing is easy, you just bleed on the page or whatever, which right. <laughs> say, but it's a good quote. Um, and I feel like that's what Gerber did so well. Like these are just intensely personal comics published by a major publisher. It strikes me how far ahead of the time there still are, however yeah. many years later. I You're now making me, uh, so Vonnegut's my f- very favorite writer. Like for my birthday a week ago, I got a, um, Slaughterhouse Five signed edition, like um, from from my wife. So now I'm like, I I need to read. I need to read more Gerber. I understood some of this, but the when you're making these parallels, I'm like, uh, okay, I'm going back through this. I mean, I I recently read all that the very late late Chip Zdarsky uh, version, but it's nothing you know like the the Gerber pieces so yeah and like shit like chip zarsky is a very extremely talented writer he's done some amazing stuff it's 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 not it could be the most talented writer and you're still not steve gerber and howard the duck right right you know when he eventually winds up getting taken off the book in the late 70s that's kind of the end of of howard for a little while i mean there, there's other writers who step in i think evanier winds up being one of the mm. the fill-in writers uh but you know the book doesn't last much longer after that and then you know, in, in 1980, Gerber filed suit against Marvel for copyright infringement, um, saying that, you know, this is his creation. It was one of the very first, like, high-profile creator's right lawsuits, which I think wound up getting settled out of court a couple of years later or something yeah, like that. It yeah, was, it was settled, and I, I forget who, but I was saying that settlement was sort of just Steve saying this is just I'm $100,000 in legal debt. Yeah. I'm not going not gonna to go anywhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I'll say, you know, as someone who's, made his career working either at a creator owned publisher or being published for creator owned stuff and was influenced by this guy. Like, you know, I, I get it. You know, I, I get that, especially when it's a creation that is so intensely personal to you. Um, 
that there is this sort of grieving process you kind of go through when it's you realize it's not yours mm -hmm. you know yeah um i mean i will say in my um i can't speak for what it was like to work in marvel 1976 but i can say if we're working at marvel 2014 whenever it was that i worked at marvel um they're pretty explicit about what the deals are like i had no question yeah. about that yeah. you know <laughs> Marvel owned every single word I was writing, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I certainly can empathize with that idea of what he went through. And I do think it's telling. I mean, you know, when he was decided I got to do something to raise some money here because this is going to get in trouble, he was able to get Jack Kirby, yeah. who actually he knew not through comics, but my understanding is that he knew him through anim working in animation. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, where's also, I believe he also knew Evan Ear. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, we could get into it, but mm -hmm. a lot of creators in that period of time went into animation and, and TV. And, you know, one thing I've never talked about publicly, but I'll address at least in some minute ways. I, I've kind of been there the last couple of years where mm -hmm. I I get it, yeah. where you kind of need some time away from comics. Sure. You know, I've been working with video games. And mm -hmm. I, I, I can't imagine what it was like for Gerber to have something so successful. And, you know, I will say in Marvel's defense, he licensed like those the the Howard the Duck get down America buttons. Mm -hmm. That was a licensing deal between Gerber and Marvel. Yeah. So he he made I understand some money doing that, and they threw in an ad in the letters page for a while, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then he had some sort of deal, which the details of which I cannot speak directly to, but I understand he was essentially on staff doing Howard the Duck and having a final say with Howard the Duck for for a while. And so to then have one day where you're like, okay, now you don't get to do this anymore, mm -hmm. whether or not it's legal, it's certainly going to be traumatic to a certain extent. Sure. You know, so I, I get it. But yeah, no, I think it's interesting. Yeah. He, so he, meet, he meets Kirby through animation mm -hmm. and they do this comic together. And soon after, I mean, I don't know if it's just coincidence or causation or whatever, but then Kirby started doing a bunch of indie comics, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, through Pacific Comics, uh, you know, Silver Star and um, Captain Victory um later phantom force at image so now yeah it's a uh, interesting implications there yes so. yes um uh, well and and just to by way of transition um you know one of the reasons that gerber was exploring uh legal action against marvel uh in 1980 was because he got word that they were looking to uh to license howard out for film and broadcast adaptations so so the thing that we're here to talk about today is one of the reasons that that all got initiated. So let's uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, and then when we come back, uh, we will uh, dive into Howard the Duck, the movie here on Marvel by the Mark. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. We are here with Joe Keating to talk about Howard the Duck, the movie, which came out in 1986. And uh, fellows, before we get into talking about the movie, uh, I just want to uh, propose uh, a, a bit that we did with uh, Jordan Morris uh, when we talked about the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie. We, we played a game where uh, it was basically where would the Stan Lee cameo have been in this movie and <laughs> what would he have said? So if we get to a part in the movie where you think that's where they would have stuck Stan. Um, just shout it out. Howard the Duck was directed by Willard Hayuk uh, and starring Leah Thompson, Jeffrey Jones, and Tim Robbins. 
uh, produced by Lo- uh, Gloria Katz and written by Huck and Katz. George Lucas was the executive producer. Um, and Lucas had wanted to adapt the comic since 1973. Uh, he was absolutely a fan of the source material, very aware of it. And Hayuk and Katz were the husband and wife team behind a lot of Lucas's early successes. They worked on uh, scripts and production for American Graffiti, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and the Temple of Doom. So, yeah, this is this is Lucas put the A-team together um, mm-hmm. to, to make this happen. Uh, it was also the first theatrical adaptation of a Marvel property uh, since the Captain America serial from 1944. Um, there had been TV adaptations, but this is the first time uh, a Marvel property had made it to the silver screen. And apparently originally it was supposed to be an animated movie. I, I did do some research on that. It was supposed to be animated. Um, that was the plan. The hitch was Lucas had to deal with Universal Pictures, um, and that wasn't for animated movies. It was for live action. So. They started spinning up the uh, the special effects. So uh, also, before we jump in, um, who here had seen the movie before? When did you see it? Did you see it when it came out? Was it later on? Yeah, Joe, what's your familiarity with the movie? I had seen it, I mean, gosh, probably like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? On VHS at some point. I, I, I remembered bits and pieces of it, um, but yeah, I don't It was essentially like going into it fresh how about you rep i saw it i remember even seeing um being the uh fairly aged i think the most aged of us um i uh i remember seeing the robert remembered seeing captain america in the movie theaters (laughs) in 1944 uh i was i was you know a a tween um by the time howard the duck came out so i was uh i was aware of the advertising about it i was um you know i'd been to the theater to see empire and other big movies. And so I I remember seeing like the big cutouts, you know, like the big advertisements in the theater for Howard the duck. And I don't know if I saw it in the theater, but I saw it certainly very quickly once it was available on video. So, or VHS or beta. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I've seen it a, a few times, but I haven't seen it again for well over 20 years. So, uh, it was very weird to see it now and think about just what a huge deal it must have been um, for everyone at the time. I know I was excited that George Lucas was making this Marvel Comics related movie. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, it was it's definitely part. That's like when I was reading comics, had been reading comics, mainly Marvel Comics, totally aware of of <laughs> not not quite getting the character. Certainly, um, I did not get what. Howard the Duck was about when I was 11 or 12 or whatever. It was just, um, it was just weird, which I thought was funny. So, and then the movie was just, you know, the sort of the precursor to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something where you get this really weird, um, you know, cartoonish characters that are alive and in the world. (laughs) Uh, So it was, I was excited about that too. I love practical effects. So I thought it was going to be my jam. And it was not quite my jam uh, at the time. <laughs> it was also just, it's just a oddly paced movie, but we'll talk about that as we get going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think you, you hit a point that describes kind of what went wrong with it. Um, 
Because uh, as, 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 as listeners may recall from the Doctor Strange movie, I'm not a fan of just like dunking on stuff, uh, but I'm also not a fan of just saying I like some if it's not good or not <laughs> to my taste. Right. But I will say, so the thing that's interesting to me is twofold. One is like, okay, what stuff I did like about it? what, And mm. then what can I learn from it? And I, Rob hit a point that I, I think sums up everything that happened with this, was I feel like people didn't know what it was. Yeah. And to a further extent, I don't think people understood who George Lucas was, meaning he is a guy who wanted who just loved film he wanted to experiment film and i think i i've never talked to him personally about this but i imagine his original vision for his career was like all right i'm gonna do my little weird arty uh you know, thx 11 by 38 and then i'm gonna do my like uh 1950s you know ode to you know blah 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 with american graffiti and then i'm gonna do star wars and then i'm gonna do some other weird thing and it was you know but that wasn't what George Lucas was in public perception by the 1980s and certainly right. not by studio perception. Right. And so I think he wanted to make like a good Fritz the cat. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially cause I didn't know. It's interesting to hear that it was really supposed to be animated. Um, because I mean, I love Ralph Bashi. I think he's one of, I think he's amazing. Um, let me yeah. fire and ice in his Lord of the Rings adaptation, especially, but I don't like Fritz the cat. It's not a good movie. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, and it falls to the same thing that Howard the Duck fell to, which is not Fritz Cat without Robert Crumb. Even if yeah. you have someone as talented as Ralph Bashy behind it, it's not the right. And it, so with Howard the Duck, without Gerber in the film, it just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it's like, and I don't know, it, it kind of gets into my overall argument with Howard the Duck. And the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately was like, why are we even making these things like why does there need to be this Howard the Duck movie mm-hmm. why can't just the comics be the thing and then that's in print forever and then people who would otherwise work on Howard the Duck just create more cool stuff and it's right. like, as simple as there's not they don't have more cool stuff to do well I don't believe that I think that's a little pessimistic um so I don't know I I, I just feel mm-hmm. like no one understood what this thing was going to be, right? So I never talked to any producers at Universal circa 1986, but I imagine I have to be like, oh, so it's a sci-fi movie from George Lucas? Like, all right, let's do it. This is money um, in the bank. And then, you know, I don't know if William Hook or Gory Katz had the same love of the comics that George Lucas did. Mm-hmm. Based off the movie, I would assume not. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of it actually seemed more influenced by the Bill Mantlo magazine run than mm-hmm. the actual... Mm-hmm. Um, so Marvel used to do a series of black and white magazines and all sorts of different comics. Like there's a, um, Tomb of Dracula and there was Deadly Hands of Kung Fu and, and there was a Howard the Duck one for about nine issues. And that one, Bill Mantlo really expanded on the whole duck world concept, which I know Gerber was never a huge fan of. And, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I mean that I know directly from the source, uh, that, that, that whole mythology and just the kind of raunchiness of it, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, Beverly and Howard in the comics were a couple, but it was never raunchy. Yeah, maybe until you even if even when you get to the 2002 Marvel Max series where it's uncensored, totally like Marvel's Vertigo for a brief period of time. Mm-hmm. Even with that, like there would be nudity, but it wasn't like raunchy. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, it wasn't like or sleazy. You know, yeah, yeah. Right. Like uh, <laughs> this movie opens up and like two like a 90 seconds in, there's already duck boot. And my wife brought up a good point. She was like, why not? Why did you have to put nipples on these duck boots? Why not just put feathers on it? I don't understand. Like, and you know, what's crazy. Keep in mind this listeners this whole time. This movie was rated PG PG. Yes. Yeah. Oh man. That, that was the most shocking thing to me as I yeah. watched it. Uh, yeah. 
So it, it, it was it was rated PG in an era where PG thirteen did exist. PG thirteen had been around for a couple of years at that point. Mm-hmm. So I've never seen this movie all the way through. Is what I realized watching it. Like there were parts of it where I had no idea where it was going or what was coming next. And I you know I, I think I've seen bits and pieces of it when I was a kid, um, but I. <laughs> or so uh i wound up watching it with my seven year old oh god (laughs) (laughs) and they were just like i mean fortunately there's stuff that just went completely over his head you know like just didn't you know like when howard's looking at the centerfold you know two minutes into the movie or you know when the weirdest thing in the entire movie is when uh he's passed out in beverly's apartment and she's going through his wallet and, and she finds an unwrapped condom in his wallet and 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 it's like again that went over his head so that was you know that was all good but like the duck boob thing first of all doesn't even make sense anatomically uh but also like why why like who is this movie for like and i know i know howard the duck is not a like a a dell comics funny animal character right i mean it's it's meant to be sort of a parody of that or or using that as a vehicle for something a lot more out there. But I don't think that was really emphasized thoroughly in the marketing for this movie either. <laughs> no. um, well, again, it gets into misunderstanding, right? I think yeah. people like Universal and arguably, again, I don't know from Bill Manlow, mm-hmm. but, but that, based off that run that it was viewed as Marvel's Fritz the Cat, mm-hmm. when really it's Marvel's Breakfast of Champions. or Star yeah. 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 yeah, You know what I mean? Like that's... That's really what it was, and it just wasn't conveyed that way. And yeah. then cinematically, I mean, we'll get in, we'll get into it more as we break it down a little bit. But it's mm-hmm. it just um, it it feels like it's trying to react to everything that every movie that was slightly popular. So it's trying to do things like Porky's. It's trying to do things mm-hmm. like uh, Ghostbusters. It's trying to do things, you know, like Back to the Future, or yeah. it just. Um, so many little notes that are just that it just feels like it's trying so hard to just be a movie that will be popular right now and mm-hmm. and trying everything from a grab bag and slapping it together the first 15 minutes of the movie i actually thought were really solid uh, yeah i would have thought were even better if i wasn't freaked out about the fact that my kid was sitting right next to me um, <laughs> just seeing duck boobs yeah yeah but um, you know it's like you know howard's sitting at home um so and he's he's you know, it opens where he is just kind of in shadow walking through his house. And I mean, we know it's Howard the duck, but the whole idea is it's meant to be this big reveal when you realize it's like, what? It's a duck. Just like literally every human being says in a Howard the duck comic when they see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he gets, uh, we don't know why at this point, but all of a sudden he's like, he's sitting in his armchair and he's yanked through his apartment wall, um, out into space, um, travels halfway across the universe, um, and gets plopped into, Cleveland, um, Cleveland on Earth. Yeah. Cleveland. And then, uh, you know, the first thing that happens is that there's this punk kids uh, who are hassling, who we find out is is Beverly Switzer. He comes to her rescue. He uses quack foo uh, to defeat them, um, which I'm glad they got the quack foo reference in there. Uh, Switzler, right? Switzer? Switzler. Switzler. Yeah. So he rescues her from, from the street toughs. Um, he has nowhere else to go, so she takes him home. Um, to her apartment and I think that whole opening like that feels authentic to 
you know, it, at least the source material more than anything else in the movie does. And I really actually like the scenes where they're in Cleveland and it kind of gets that like very urban, very street level like grittiness, um, which I feel like was a, a really important part of the, the setting of the comics, um, which I appreciated they got that in. So for the first 15 minutes, I was like, OK, maybe this is going to be all right. You know, it's it's not too far off from what I'm hoping it will be. The next day, um, Beverly takes Howard to Phil Blumbert, who is like the the most scientific person she knows. Um, and he happens to be dating someone from Beverly's band. Um so she thinks he's a scientist, but he turns out to be a lab assistant uh, and, and Howard resigns himself to life on Earth and rejects Beverly's help. Uh, and, and Phil Blumbert is played by Tim Robbins, who is absolutely swinging for the fences with his performance. <laughs> like he is so big in this movie. Uh, he is more of a cartoon than Howard is. Yeah, he's he's playing the um, the sort of campiest stooge. Uh <laughs> It's like every everything, every movement he does feels like uh, like a, a vaudeville routine. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, it's just it's weird. And it's weird to see. I mean, I've, I've, I really like his work uh, in many different kinds of movies. So I was excited to see what he was going to do with this character <laughs> and uh, and or to remember what he did with the character. And then I, you know, it was it was what it was. Um, I mean, he was also, I mean, I haven't looked up his age at the time, but he looked like he was 14 years old. Right. Right. You know, Brian said, I think he was probably just like, all right, look, I got this job in a George Lucas movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be a big deal. It's coming up from Universal. I'm just like going to swing for the fences and see what happens, you know? Mm Yep. And he did. And it didn't kill his career. So, no, I mean, he was in Jacob's Ladder like four years later um yeah i will yeah. say most people made it through this unscathed except for it seems like william hook uh yeah. which i think is kind of unfair but uh um, yeah 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 he almost vanishes from hollywood after this but it just it felt like the movie overall mm-hmm. felt like a a lot of too many chefs in the kitchen there's people who were trying to make this thing that would have been really cool including mm-hmm. him and then there was just a lot of people being like oh no well we need to have a musical number and do this i'll make her yeah. answer <laughs> And then like, oh, this is exciting, you know, because like 80s movies, I love them, but Mm -hmm. they're not winning Oscars. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) movies like Zapped or Pinball Summer or uh, Joysticks or whatever. (laughs) You know, like I love these movies. I I don't I I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I think the whole concept is stupid, but I I, I unapologetically love these these types of movies. So Mm -hmm. I see what they're going for. Yeah. You know, you even mentioned Gremlins or this is years later, but the Garbage Pill Kids movie. And, right, uh, which mm-hmm. I also like. Um, so I get it. I really get, but it's like this and this and this. It's like too much of other things, which took it away from the thing that made it great. Yeah, and, yeah. The the whole thing just feels like it was studio noted to death. And we'll get to the point where I really think it it goes off the rails. But I I think so. Like, it, and it's no shade on Tim Robbins at all. But as soon as his character enters, I just kind of felt things starting to wobble a little bit. Like, uh oh. <laughs> This isn't going to be the Howard the Duck I'm hoping for. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But still, you know, there's still some, you know, it, there. there's actually a very funny scene where Beverly is bringing him uh, to the lab uh, to uh, meet Tim Robbins. And um, she's got him in a duffel bag and she's like dragging him up the stairs, uh, which is just it's a funny visual. I don't know, because it looks like she's dragging a child like in a uh-huh. sack, um, which, you know, again, my kid's right there. So that's funny to me. Um <laughs> This is a different aside, a different mm-hmm. note that I think um, that I that I re- researched about this. But 
George Lucas, that he took such a hit on this movie and he was going through a divorce that he had to liquidate some of his resources. And that one of those things was the, the animation wing he had that he sold to Steve Jobs that became Pixar. Whoa. So because this movie tanked in the box office, it spawned Pixar uh, as, as a thing. So, you know, they're just, I know in talking with you, Joe, you know, sometimes you'll see, you'll tell us these sort of silver linings of different things we're talking about. And when I saw this, I was like, this is like a, the, the outcome of this movie that is what it is caused Pixar. Uh, you know, it let it happen, which was a is a very interesting thing of just happenstance movie making and creativity. That's wild. I had no idea. Um, where are we at? Oh yeah. So so Howard has said that he's not gonna. Uh, he doesn't want Beverly's help anymore. Um, he's gonna go get a job. That's the next thing that happens. So here's the next thing that I was like, oh boy, I can't believe I'm watching this with my kid next to me. Um, <laughs> he. Uh, he gets a job at I don't what is this thing like it's like a it's sex like, spa or something. There's we have one down the hill it? from where I live in Montevilla. There's a it's called Tub and Tan, and we call it Tug and Tan because uh, <laughs> of there's like some prostitution and things that used to go on on eighty second eighty deuce, and uh, uh, that was a place people went. So it's <sighs> like um, and it's still there. Like the the whole you know. Uh, town the whole little street went through a renaissance but somehow tug and tan is still there um <laughs> and this is exactly what that is it's like you go rent a room with a hot tub uh for a little while and uh all right <laughs> so i'm glad your kid got to see that thank you for explaining it uh <laughs> i guess if he's gonna grow up on the east side of portland he's gonna learn these things eventually so yeah anyway howard doesn't last long in this but lasted longer than I needed him to last. Oh, uh, <laughs> side note, true believers. Yeah. That's where Stan Lee's cameo is. He's, <laughs> guy, he's the guy who hires Howard at the, the, so the guy, not, not the person at the unemployment office, but the guy at the tug, the tug and tan or whatever. That's Stan Lee. Perfect. Oh man. Uh, what happened? Uh, so then, okay. So Howard quits this job immediately. He uh, heads back to the club where Beverly's band Cherry Bomb is playing. Good band, good band name. I will give uh, a nice Runaways reference and Joe yep. Jet thing in there. Yeah, very. But 80s. like again, it's like it's, it's not the character. Do you know nope. what I mean? Like uh, <laughs> I just I don't understand. Like why does it need to be a Howard the Duck movie? It, like it could just as easily be Chris Ware's Quimby Mouse as for as far away <laughs> as this got from the original source material. It's true, you know. <laughs> I'm um, just I'm trying to think of the George Lucas adaptation of Quimby Mouse now and wow that's a horrifying mess. <laughs> and Joe, I start I I've been I think Brian and I talked about this a little while ago too. We've been braced for you somehow convincing us that this was a great movie, but uh Because you're like the ringmaster like Yeah, it but if it was but we're like I can't see when I'm understanding what Howard the Duck is as a character, I can't see Joe doing this but it could happen because he you know you might defend the creation as an 80s kitsch thing or something you know so we i'm glad that you are you were like leading us on the the points that i was like sort of suppressing like maybe maybe there's something more to this but well, so <laughs> again, my, my, i always i don't like just straight up 
slam it and stuff. I don't think that's interesting. Right. Yeah. I don't think it's useful. But I do feel like there's a lot to be learned. And the, the great thing that comes out of this is that it is this amazing testament to how amazing comic books are mm-hmm. um, as the storytelling uh, mechanism and how like, comics, I mean, they've always been in a way. I mean, you talked about serials from 1944. I mean, the source code for pop culture, whether or not it's respected to that. And how something like Howard the Duck remains such a great piece of literature in or out of comics. And yet it doesn't work in this other form. And my argument is that great. It just, it doesn't need to, mm-hmm. right? you know? Yeah. And look again, I can't say it enough. I love, I don't even know what you call this sub genre of like eighties kitsch, you know, sort of like raunchy comedies that mm-hmm. don't even know what PC means. Like, I love that stuff. Yeah. But that's not hard the duck, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I was trying to put myself through the thought experiment of like, would I feel that way about this movie? If it was just, steve duck or whatever i mean, I guess that's not the best name to use but whatever it's <laughs> another character and that then gets into the whole thing of like well there's just so there's a line what we'll get into soon that i feel like embodies the movie i'll tease that you keep talking about the movie i'm gonna get okay. back to okay. getting the movie that sums up the movie for me okay well this this next scene is actually another scene that i it it didn't feel super howardy but i i liked the scene anyway um so uh beverly's band is is performing at this punk club um howard comes across their manager ginger um who has been swindling the girls out of their money um their career is not going anywhere he's telling them it's like oh you know no one's paying or there's no opportunities for you he's been taking all the money um so uh howard tells him he doesn't like uh, the way he's that, that he's talking about the girls, um, he gets into a fight, um, which Howard winds up winning somewhat improbably, but we're mm-hmm. going to go with it. And he gets the girls money back and he gets Ginger to release them from their contract. So um, then Howard uh, rejoins Beverly backstage after the band's performance, put the demons into her. And then the ending of this is incredibly straightforward. Like uh, Howard and Phil arrive, they get this neuron disintegrator or neutron. That, yeah. That, yeah. That, that Phil shows Howard where it is. He's like, here's our deus ex machina gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, just put this on the golf cart um, with only like the most minimal complications. They shoot the scientist to get the dark overlord out of him. They shoot the dark overlord again to kill it. And then they destroy the machine with it, which prevents Howard from being able to get back home. But like, that's it. Like there's no, like here's how the plan's going to work. And then there's no like curveball that forces them to like come up with something else. Like I, I just watched um, back to the future for the first time with my kid and he loved it. But mm-hmm. the, that scene at the very end uh, where, you know, Marty's still in the past and he's, he's trying to get back to the, back to the future. Whoa. Um, that's a yeah. good name. And, and like, there's that whole thing with like doc Brown trying to connect the two wires and like he almost falls several times and like all sorts of stuff almost goes wrong. It's like this really good, like high tension, 10 minute stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, and had my kid like almost falling apart from stress. Cause he's like, it has to work out. It has to work out, <laughs> but there's nothing like that at all. Like this, I mean, this is just like, yeah, here's, here's the super gun. Just shoot him with the super gun several times. After it was just, what felt like. 40 minutes of the ultralight scene like that right the yeah. the cuts and stunts they do in that ultralight again it's like they so much effort for and so much screen time and it's mm-hmm. just not 
And it's all practical too. It's all like practical stunts and like so many cop cars. That, that is like one of my favorite '80s tropes. Like <laughs> those boxy the old cop thing. cars, just yeah, yeah like just Blues brothers. Stuff. <laughs> it's so good. I, I actually I could never get enough of that. So I, I will give that to the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, that's that's it. Uh, you know, the, the day is saved. Um, Howard becomes Beverly's manager. They hire Phil as an employee, I guess. Um, uh, on their tour um and then like through a one last wacky hijinks howard winds up accidentally getting put on stage and he like is given a guitar and then then we learn that howard can totally shred right um and, i think we've uh, seen him hit the piano a little bit earlier on in the right and he movie. does talk yeah. about writing songs yeah. so yeah that was set up earlier i'll give him yeah. credit because even at his apartment there's a picture of his old high school band and then he yeah. mentions that when they talk on the synthesizer. Yeah. I do want to point out a couple things. One, I thought it was interesting that uh, Tim Robbins had a zippy the pinhead button on. I didn't <laughs> notice that. I think that someone on here knows what this is supposed to be. Yeah. You right. know, because obviously zippy the pinhead and Howard Duck very different, but still. Right. Um, Howard Duck's more zippy than it is whatever this, whatever this uh, movie is. Yeah. Yep. I will say that science to scene had my favorite joke in the movie. Which is uh, Tim Robbins is something's being thrown at Howard. I can't remember what exactly. And Tim Robbins tells him the duck, and Howard says, "And proud of it." <laughs> yes, I yeah. thought that was really good. That's the best because there's a zillion duck puns and things throughout the movie, and that one was yeah. yeah. That was good. That was actually very good. Um, <laughs> I will say that Howard the Duck song at the end is a jammer. Like uh, totally, that's Tom Thomas Dolby. Yeah, made mm-hmm. that uh, song. And George Clinton. I don't know. I saw in the credits that he was through. Yeah. with it, which I was, I was, I was surprised by. Um, so to keep, I'm going to tell you what would be a very long story, but I'll make it really short. When I lived in San Francisco many years ago, there was a thing called Midnight's for Maniacs, which was all these like 80, it was like marathons in, in person on 35 millimeter of these 80s kitsch movies. And the guy who ran it, Jesse Hawthorne Fix, uh, would make mixtapes. And uh, I still have a cassette player in my car. And so I play these old mixtapes and it's all songs from that. And this Howard the Duck song is like one of the last ones on the first or second, the first mixtape. And again, I love it. It just plays on and it's so, it, it's, it's good. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's I a banger. Know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a banger. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I, I, so like I said, I don't think I'd ever seen the movie all the way through. I absolutely knew that song. Like I knew every note of that song when I heard it, like it, it must've, I don't know if it was on the radio a lot or it's just like one of those songs. I mean, it's Thomas Dolby. So you hear it twice and it's stuck in your head forever. But um, it was. But yeah. a, and I, the other thing is like Leah Thompson sang. Um, yeah. They, they mm-hmm. were going to have her, you know, have somebody overdub the stuff. But she I mean, it was, of course, she was. But she's the one who sang on those tracks and the earlier tracks, the Cherry Bomb, all the Cherry Bomb music is pretty good uh, yeah. <laughs> for that band. And it's so of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a it's so and Howard the Duck would have been a I could understand, you know, it's they're like, this is going to be Ghostbusters. This is going to mm-hmm. be the song Ghostbusters. It's going to yeah. be played on the radio everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they put some a chunk of cash into that, too. Yeah. Which is part there, of, there's there was no expense spared on this movie. Like I think the, <laughs> yeah. bu- the budget was something like 38 million or something like that, which, you know, for the time is considerable. Um I think it just barely made its money back worldwide um, or maybe not quite. It, it, it came very close anyway. Um, and but, the dark overlord. I mean, the, the, when the, we see, Oh the, yeah, we like, should mention the dark overlord, like that scene, the, that the is, special effects it, on that are, yeah. yeah, it's like this huge, um, both, you know, it looks like some 
terrifying monster. Um, it's very like Lovecraftian. Yeah, yeah it, it looks like a like a like some sort of like giant crab monster that's turned inside out, and it's yeah, it, <laughs> it's really there's a lot of gross stuff um, for like, that that whole character. Like the the there's a point where um, like when he's still in Jeffrey Jones's body, um, he in like the truck. Yeah, he, he like sticks this four foot tongue into a cigarette lighter to recharge himself, which is so awful. Yeah. And, those, those yeah. things. I mean, I'm, I was worried for Jack's brain, just that, like that tongue thing. Yeah. was gross. Like yeah. if you're, I mean, if you're not watching a horror, that's the other thing is like, I love horror movies. I watched them when I was a kid. I watched every single thing I could possibly get my eyes on, but seeing all these things in this movie and the way mm-hmm. they're presented and the way they happen, they're just so out of place that it, uh, they they feel more disturbing. Yeah. I'm like, why would you do that in this movie? Because <laughs> you're trying you to make ghostbusters. With that? Yeah. yeah. Or gremlins, or you know. Yeah. No, J- Jack only watched the first half of it, uh, so he he watched the half that's going to give him a lot of questions, but not the half that's going to give him nightmares. So <laughs> good, I'm, good. I'm, I'm a halfway decent. Because the Dark Overlord, I think, as a kid, might be a, yeah. a bit much. Um, that would have been yeah. intense. Wait, did your kid just peace out? Was he just like, I'm good? I'm well, out. We or we had to we had to watch it. At, well, uh, we have like movie nights during the week. And so, but because of his bedtime, we only get through half of a movie. So yeah, no, he didn't walk away, although that would have made for a much better story. So maybe I'll just fix that in the edit. He walked away (laughs) in the fantastic four movie, uh, the Roger Corman movie when we were watching it together before this all happened. He he (laughs) only made it in like, uh, 20 minutes. And he's not to the age where he realizes that there's good movies and bad movies. Like, you know, he still he thinks if it's on a screen, it must be good. Anyway, that's that's the Howard the Duck movie. Um, so the other thing that we did for this uh, episode at the at the urging of Joe, uh, which I'm grateful you did this, although it did delay the recording of it uh, because <laughs> yeah. it, it took me a a literal month uh, to get the comic book adaptation sent to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we read the uh, either the three issue limited series uh, or the um, the Marvel super special that collected all three issues. Uh, the adaptation, Danny Fingeroth was the writer. He was, he was given the thankless task of adapting the script uh, to comic book. Um, and then uh, Kyle Baker did all the pencils and the inks on this, um, which are just like the three covers are absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, Joe, uh, since you you really uh, urged us to track this down uh, and read it, and I'm so glad you did. Um, but yeah, what do you, what are your thoughts on this? Well, so just in general, uh, if if people haven't checked it out, the eight Marvel '80s and in, in, in '70s uh, too. Uh, era of movie adaptations has some incredible work that a lot of people just don't see because i don't think any a lot of it's collected mm-hmm. like there's a whole bilson kevich dune that's amazing uh al, al williamson uh does blade runner wow. um yeah it's it's awesome um and of course earlier uh jack kirby did 2001 a space odyssey howard of ducks by uh kyle baker who is a guy whose work i absolutely love um, and this was pretty early on in his career. I've never talked to Kyle about it, but uh, I have to imagine part of it because he was doing like these comic strips kind of of the X-Men that were really funny and he was inking a lot of the stuff, but I don't recall him drawing a lot of stuff at Marvel. And so I think, again, having not talked to him about it, it just looks like someone who's like, I'm going to put my all into this thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know this movie. I don't know how this movie is going to be because a lot of the time my understanding is like, they have like stills in the script to work from. 
And so I think Kyle just put his all into this and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Like I, I said earlier, you know, something did good came out of this movie and, you know, I didn't realize Pixar was one of them, but the <laughs> other one is just adaptation. Like, and I think it's, I mean, Kyle Baker's a, a guy who, who only, only gets better with time, but even this early career stuff, uh, a lot of the issues that we had with the movie, I feel like works so much better. Uh, yes, he's, so a yeah. cartoonist. he's a cartoonist in, in the purest sense of like the form, like he knows how to convey things and convey motion, emotion and motion. Like mm-hmm. uh, I would argue that his scene between Beverly and Howard is not gross. No, no. it's so it, much better. Yeah. Th- that was actually something that I, I, I made a note about. Like I, yeah. I think the, the adaptation does a couple of things that make this such a much better version of the story than the movie. Um, mm-hmm. The first is that a lot of stuff is just compressed, um, which mm-hmm. really helps with some of the pacing issues that Rob was, was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like, as you were just I- implying Joe, um, a lot of the more adult jokes are either softened or they're cut altogether. Um, well, it's not and, even so much that, that, that they're softened. It's just conveyed so much. better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is not one of the more adult things, but that that biplane scene that just went on for like eight years in the movie. Yeah, yeah. But this is so cool. Like he does some really cool things with sound effects and the motion of the plane. Yep. That you just can't do in a movie. It just you know proves that for some things, yes, movies are a superior form. For a lot of other things, comics have a superior form. Mm-hmm. And the thing that works so much better as a comic. And not every movie needs to be a comic. Not every comic needs to be a movie. Yeah. You know. I, Regardless of, of, of Gerber not being part of this, Baker really makes it a thing that works. You know, yeah. um, I mentioned Disneyland earlier. This is going to sound like a wild tangent, but it, it, it relates directly to this. Um, when I was a kid at Disneyland, when I would go to Disneyland, they had these like pineapple Dole Whip things, which you could only oh, yeah. get for the longest time. The Dole Whip, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. At St. Helens, Oregon, there's a, mo- there's a movie theater called the Columbia Theater. And I don't know how they arranged it, but they had official pineapple dole whip and so i had it for the first time like a year ago and i had the biggest what's it called like olfactory sense mm-hmm. like memory just like flashbacks and i felt like i was at disneyland so sidebar so there's that right i had the marvel super edit whatever it's called the the all done in one thing mm-hmm. um and i can't find it i don't know where it is so i had to order the the single issues from my comic shop.com thanks a lot for those guys and when i saw issue three it was the same olfactory sense. Like I had this when I was a kid <laughs> yeah. and I totally forgot I had it. And it, that copy of it is lost somewhere in time. But as soon as I held the comic, I could just feel like, Oh man, yeah, I owned this. And I remember that the coloring on the Marvel 25th anniversary logo on the corner box. I remembered all the ads. I knew the Gumby and pokey Tootsie pop ad was <laughs> yep. on the back. It was some weird thing. Like in the back of my brain, like it was such a cool experience to have that with a comic book I, I just i'd never have had that before except for the pineapple dole thing <laughs> but again it just it just felt like a, like a magical object so yeah nothing else. and plus it just i don't know i kyle baker man i just i feel like he's one of the best that was industries ever had and you know if nothing else we got these three issues of just amazing cartooning from this guy yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and we were mentioned I I was talking about this uh before we started recording. Um and there's actually a uh a cbr.com article about this um that I will put in the show notes, but um talking about how how cool Kyle Kyle Baker's work is. Um but uh so there uh 
there were two uh, Marvel annuals that came out uh, in the 80s. Um, one was uh, Fantastic Four annual number 19. The other one was Avengers annual number 14. Um, and it was this really clever crossover where um, both the Avengers and the Fantastic Four had storylines going that resulted on them attacking the same scroll ship for two different reasons. And neither one of them was aware that the other team was doing it. So it, it all comes to a head uh, in the, the climax of the story where, um, you know, they're, they're both busting in. They, for a second, they both assume the other is a bunch of scrolls. Right. Um, there's a fight and then there's a resolution. Um, well, the, uh, the way the crossover is handled uh, is that John Byrne, um, he did the layouts for both books, I think. Um, but he did the the layouts for this scene specifically. Um, it's the exact same layouts. And uh, Kyle Baker inked the Avengers annual and Joe Sinnott inked the Fantastic Four annual. <laughs> and they do they did finishes. I mean, because these are just you know rough breakdowns. Um, and if you want to see and, and, you know, I love Joe Sinnott inks like absolutely top notch um, deserves all the flowers he gets. Um, but it's like one of those very rare uh, opportunities to see exactly what an inker adds to or a finisher adds to a, a comic book page. Um, and it's so cool. If it, It's worth tracking these down or, or, again, look at the CBR article that's in the show notes. Um, but seeing what Kyle Baker adds to John Burns breakdowns, um, it's so much fun. Um, and it's it's very different from what Senate does. Uh, but it's just the, the dynamism um, that I, I love his line work. Uh, I've, I've always been a big Kyle Baker fan. So, yeah, uh, I, I was a little skeptical about tracking down the, the adaptation until you mentioned that Baker did the art. I'm like, <laughs> OK, like I'm in. <laughs> so. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, I didn't quite have the same, uh, you know, like time travel memories. Um, but cracking open this this actual copy from the time, getting out of the bag, opening it as we read so much stuff digitally now. Um, I, and I read so many, you know, collections that are usually printed on some glossier paper, a little, you know, heavier stock. This was like that, the smell of the sort of newsprint stock and the, um, and just the look of this art, the, the Kyle Baker art, um, transported me to, mm -hmm. to so many, I mean, I just had this sort of flash of reading a bunch of uh, things in that period in the eighties. And, uh, this, this was, yeah, it's so great to just crack it open and, smell that comic book for a while uh, yeah but anyway the the one thing about the book the that is so interesting to see those places where it diverges like uh obviously something happened in the script to change the dark overlord mm -hmm. from what we see in the comic adaptation which looks like a weird giant destroyer duck uh with tentacles um yeah. And it, it's at some point someone was like, not scary enough, too weird, doesn't doesn't make any sense, I guess. I don't know what who would say it doesn't make any sense at that point in this movie. But um <laughs> uh so they they changed it completely and I don't I mean, I I think it would have been better to be like this adaptation. Of course, I don't I, I agree, I don't think it should have been made into a movie ever. Um it just doesn't work that well. Um no. but I I mean I have already like Joe's mentioned this a lot and I always call it sort of the Alan Moore position of um, which I, I adore one of about originality and one about the medium of what it should be and just go have your own new idea and put it in a movie or put it in a comic doesn't all need to be 
one generation of ideas that you start cranking sequels out, you know, um, just, I mean, serials work so much better in a comic anyway, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. Comics gets viewed and you know what credits do. I think a lot of creators and, and people do this uh, view of this as well as like the second class medium mm-hmm. and it's not, it's no. far superior. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I don't indulge in the, in the Watchmen spinoffs. I mean, you mentioned Alan Moore cause who cares? Who needs yeah. it? Right. Yep. I don't of this thing. You know, like the lesson of Watchmen wasn't to do Watchmen for 50 years. It was to now you do your other thing. Right. You know, it's like, I don't want to read anyone else doing Howard the Duck besides Steve Gerber. That being said, I want to see what someone else's Howard the Duck is. Like, yeah. what's 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 your big personal comic? And you can do that at Marvel. A lot of huge, brilliant work came out of it. I mean, like, you know, I mean, this is kind of gets me being a hypocrite, but maybe not like Frank Miller on Batman. Right. Mm-hmm. Like. That technically was a character that came out in 1938, but he did such a different thing with it. It became yeah. its own thing. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So what do people do? They try to imitate that for 40 years. And I'm right. like, yep. no, like, that was Frank Miller's version of this. What's your version of this? Yeah. I'm not one of those guys who's saying like, oh, any corporate comics are bad. Um, although that is a stance I kind of had in the past. <laughs> I just, if you're going to do it, do your thing. Yeah. You yeah. know? Um, add your thing, you know, like people dog on Rob Liefeld, but one reason I defend him to the ends of the earth is because when he did New Mutants, he created a whole bunch of stuff. And now what's happening? Deadpool, which you created 30 years ago, so 30 years ago this year, actually, mm-hmm. yep. is still going on, you know? And has um, been one of the biggest characters for Marvel for I don't know how many years now. And even Howard, he started out as a bit character in a man thing comic, <laughs> yeah. you know? It is yeah. a totally he original creation. New York. Yeah, yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, but this, so when Gerber had the opportunity to continue on with his bit character, what did he do? He made it so intensely his mm-hmm. that it couldn't really be anyone else's. And, you know, um, there's been a couple instances where one of my things, which will probably be adapted into something else at a certain point in the relatively nearest future. But when I talked to the people behind that, I just said, look, do I don't, the comic already existed. So mm-hmm. Do your own thing. You know, like take the spirit of it and, and do your own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the problem with Howard was they didn't take the spirit of the thing with it. Yeah, They just did something totally separate. So if you're not even take the spirit of it, then why do it at all? Right. But I guess my point with this whole thing is not everything needs to be something else. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. yeah. That's a pretty good summary. I think the confusion comes in where it's like, you don't make any money off of comics, but you can make huge money off of movies. And that's, it's literally, I think it's just a reflection of a capitalist point of view. You know, it, it's, yeah. this is where the money is. So this is where the value is. And no, I, I mean, I think as a creative medium, I think comics have it all over every other medium. I've always thought that. Um, but if I wanted to afford a third house somewhere, uh, I probably wouldn't do it trying to make comic books. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's certainly fair. Yeah. <laughs> but then yeah. again, you know, look at Todd McFarlane. Sure. Look at Robert, you know, mm-hmm. like Craig Kirkman, like I just, you know, that's a guy who, I don't know Todd's background too well, but with Robert, like he started with nothing mm-hmm. and none yeah. of his original books even sold well. Mm-hmm. And I, I always go back to him as the example because he's a dude it was like, well, this isn't working. So what else am I going to do? All right, I'm going to do this. And then, yeah, when his thing was made, it was made and it was a huge success, I think, in part because he was able to stick with it. Yeah. I think a Howard the Duck movie could have worked fine, probably, if Steve Gerber was somehow involved. Yeah. yeah. You know, 
uh, or in Gene Colan and Val Merrick for that matter. So I relate this to a Takashi Miike, Japanese director, and he, I read an interview with him where it, it, it was kind of early, like midway, well, I don't say midway through his career, but it was he had, he'd been doing it for a while, but he was still doing these like straight to video movies. And the interviewer was like, why are you doing these? And he's like, because the, the, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. the scale is so low. Yeah. You know, like I'm, uh, I'm working on a comic right now, which I'm likely self-publishing. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really done that before. And it's hugely freeing because there's no stakes beyond like what me and the, my collaborator want to do with it, you know? Yep. And I think that's why comics at their best are so, I mean, fruitful for everyone else. I mean, whether or not it's directly adapted. I mean, you look at video games or, or movies and, you know, uh, uh, toys or whatever. Like, I mean, I go back to Rob Liefeld. Like, he he didn't need a huge team behind him to create Deadpool and Gideon and Domino and Cable and so on and so on and so on, you know? And mm-hmm. so I, I do think that's part of when the scale almost gets too big mm-hmm. um, and it gets away from that with comics for a little bit, like, you know, with Howard the Duck again, you know, back in the seventies, it feels like no one was really paying attention editorially, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, mm-hmm. and they were, they were owned by Cadence, but there wasn't like a Disney behind them, you right. know? But but comics can be such a like it, it is the rebel medium of, mm-hmm. of visual storytelling and it, and at its best is when it's treated like a sort of wild west. So I don't know. Like I'm not saying you can't do that, Marvel. You obviously can. I we, we cited many examples of it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I guess my argument is, and you know, we need more of that. And I frankly need to do more of that. I took a, a conscious sabbatical away from comics because mm-hmm. I got to the point where. The thing I love doing and the commodification and industry behind it were in conflict and I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And so I took a break um, and I'd just been working in the video game industry and a couple things happened. One was uh, I had a, a nephew live with me for a while uh, and uh, he I would take him. He's in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and all of a sudden he lives in a comic book museum, essentially. And uh, <laughs> every Wednesday we would go to the comic store, Cosmic Monkey, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And so to see him love this medium so much and so purely really got me psyched for the medium again. And then what got me excited for the industry again was seeing all these smaller publishers kind of come up and to see bigger publishers start taking risks again, mm-hmm. you know? I feel like, I mean, I got stagnant as a creator and I feel like the industry got a little stagnant, but I'm, I, I, I'm really excited for where comics are. Um, you know, I guess when we get to the plugs portion, we'll, we'll, we'll plug the, the, the first thing I have coming out. But yeah, I kind of just needed to relearn to love comics. And a big part of it is I took the financial pressure off of it. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, all right, let's just create a bunch of cool stuff and we'll see what works and what doesn't, you know? <laughs> Comics, yeah. again, the message of this episode are comics are rad. Comics yep. are rad. It's the message <laughs> of every episode. Uh, <laughs> Joe, uh, talking about uh, rad comics, uh, tell us about the rad comics that uh, you are working yeah, on that you can time. talk about. It's plug time. Yeah, so, pew, 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 yeah, pew. Right, sweet. I've got some stuff I can't talk about, but the one thing I can talk about, one of the publishers that was really getting me stoked is actually a local publisher in Portland, Oregon called Birdseye. And uh, uh, I just excited for the way they're approaching comics and so they were talking about putting together an anthology and they invited me along and so i have a 10 pager uh that actually kind of talks about the last 
two years away from comics called Skull Man, Man of a Thousand Skulls. And uh, <laughs> it's sort of, I guess, like the like if, if, if the, of this phase of my career, it's sort of the issue zero. So mm-hmm. uh, if you like that, it's on Kickstarter right now. The anthology is called The Bebop. And again, that's from Bird's Eye Comics. If you look at any of my social media websites, it's like the main thing on there right now. So great, and we'll make sure that's it. Yeah, we'll make sure it's in the yeah. uh, in the show notes too. Yeah. But yeah. like I said, it's not gonna that not that that story will continue on, but it's sort of like what I learned from the past and where I want to take into the future. So excellent, awesome. looking forward to it. Uh, it's it's always worth the ride uh, to check out whatever you're up oh. to. Um, right on, thanks. Guys. You've never let us down. So yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah. very much love this name too. Uh, the, the skull man. Um, yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, that's it. I think for this episode, I think we have, uh, we've plucked this duck. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, as far as our stuff goes, you can, uh, give a five-star review to us on Apple podcasts or any other service that lets you do reviews. If you send a screenshot of that to Marvel by the month at gmail.com, we will send you something in the mail. If you uh, want to send any fan letter or hate mail, uh, you can also send it to that address. <laughs> Marvelbythemonth.com uh, has our merch, has our full episode list and all sorts of other good stuff on there. And our favorite social media channel is our Instagram channel, which you can get at Marvel by the month. Uh, I think that is it for this episode. So, uh, Joe, thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be here, guys. I love it. Look forward to next time. Awesome. Excellent. Oh, uh, and while we're talking stuff, I just want to plug Kyle Baker in general. Yes. Uh, if you want one book of his besides this, the one that had the biggest impact on me, and I go back over and over and over again, I think he just self-published and uh, reissued is uh, Why I Hate Saturn. Um, <laughs> it's a phenomenal book. It's got a twist in there that you won't see coming, but I feel like it's such a great testament to Kyle Baker's work and uh, comics in general. Uh, so check it out. Awesome seconded yeah uh awesome uh well until uh next week my name is brian stratton and mine is rob milne and stay safe stay healthy and stay inside the read comics Welcome back to <laughs> just I was about to say welcome back to Howard, Howard the, the Monk. Duck. <laughs> <laughs>